Okay. Friends, we're continuing today in our sermon series through the book of Ephesians. Uh, and a quick refresher before we dive in. We started our first sermon last week, um, and we talked about how the book of Ephesians was actually originally a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote from prison to a cluster of churches that he planted or he started before he was thrown into prison for sharing the gospel, okay? It's a letter that he wrote to them. And it's been seven years now since Paul's been able to visit these churches in Ephesus because of his imprisonment, a period of time upon which these churches were heavily persecuted by the culture around them, okay? And a lot of the members there, they couldn't take it. It was too hard. It was too much persecution, too much pressure, and a lot of them started to fall away from the faith. They started to falter in their faith. They started to shy away from Christ. So, what does Paul do? He writes a letter from prison encouraging these persecuted Christians that he hasn't seen for seven years to keep going despite of their setbacks, despite of the persecution. And what does Paul do to encourage them to continue in this walk? Well, we saw last week, Paul did it first by exposing them to the contents of God's love, right? If you were here last week, you saw Paul or you read, you heard Paul uh, explain to the Ephesian Christians that if you're truly in Christ, God's love for you is forever. It's unbreakable. If you've truly received on our Lord and Savior, even if you struggle and at times in your life feel like you want to abandon Him, God will never abandon you. That was the encouragement. So, therefore, come back to the faith. Keep going. That was verses 1 to 14. And now, as we talk about verses 15 to 23, what we're going to see is that Paul still continues to encourage these persecuted, beat-down Christians, but instead of encouraging them by revealing to them the contents of God's love, in verses 15 to 23, Paul encourages them by revealing to them the contents of his prayers. You know how sometimes you would WhatsApp a friend and say, hey, I prayed for your doctor's appointment today. Or, hey, I prayed for that business meeting you had today. Or, hey, I, I prayed for your date today. I don't know. Whatever it is, what are you trying to do there? You're trying to encourage them by revealing to them the contents of your prayers. And that's pretty much what Paul does here. He tells the Ephesians what he's been praying for them about. But what I want us to notice, this is interesting, is that as Paul prays for these persecuted beat-down Christians, there's one thing, if you notice, he never prays for. As we read the passage, you will not see Paul pray for God to change their situation. Isn't that interesting? Paul thanks God for their salvation amidst their difficult circumstances. Paul prays for them to see certain things amidst their circumstances. But not once in this prayer we see Paul ask God to change their circumstances. Now, would it be wrong to pray for that? Of course not. But apparently, Paul thinks there are other things more important for them to experience rather than a change of circumstances. Even now, even when things are dire and are desperate, he doesn't pray for that. There are other things that are more important. What are those things? Well, let's get into it. This is the Word of God, taken from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 to 23. 
Paul writes, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Thus says the Lord. So, before I start, you know how some people can get a bit teachy when they pray? You know what I'm talking about? I've, I've had somebody literally pray for me one day in public, and they go, Father, I just really, really, really pray that Tazar would start valuing the Bible more. And it's like, okay, you're supposed to be praying for me, not give me unsolicited advice, okay? That's not the time for it, but people do that. Now, when we do it, it's kind of annoying, but when an apostle does it, you better listen. <laughs> Plus, he does it in a much more pleasant way. That's actually edifying to those who heard, okay? So, we see here at least three prayer points slash implicit lessons, okay, that Paul writes to these struggling Christians in, in Ephesus. First, we see Paul thank God for the proof of their salvation, which implicitly there is a call to love, okay? Second, we see Paul ask God to mature the mind of their heart, which is implicitly a call to see. And then third, we see Paul remind them of Jesus' current authority, which is a call to rethink, okay? Paul thanks God for the proof of salvation. Paul asks God to mature their mind, the mind of their heart, and Paul reminds these Ephesian Christians of Jesus' current authority. Let's start with the first one. Paul thanks God for the proof of their salvation, which is a call to love. Look at verse 15 to 16. Let's start at the beginning. Paul says there that he doesn't stop thanking God in his prayers for the Ephesian Christians. Why? Because he's heard about their faith in the Lord Jesus. He's heard about their faith. I know you're struggling, Paul's saying here, but you have faith in Christ. So, be encouraged. You're good. You're forgiven. You're loved. Keep going. Keep running toward Him. But the question is, how can Paul be so sure that they truly have faith in Christ? I mean, it's been seven years since the guy's seen them, right? He's been in prison. How can he be so sure that the report he got about their faith was actually genuine and authentic? Well, because, friends, the news about their faith was coupled with another piece of news. What piece of news? Let's look at verse 15 again carefully. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, which just means believers. Saints are believers, okay? In the New Testament, saints aren't really holy people. They're just people who have received Christ as Lord and Savior. I've heard of your faith and 
Your love toward all the saints, therefore I do not cease to give thanks for you. Paul heard about the way these Ephesian Christians interacted with other Christians and other believers amongst them. He heard about the love that they had for all the saints, and for him, that was proof enough about their salvation. Now, isn't that interesting? I mean, Paul could have chosen to say other things, you know? He could have said, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and how many Bible verses you memorized. He could have said, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and how much you tithed or how beautiful your prayers are. I thank God for your salvation. But those are not the things he mentioned. He said, here's how I know that the news of your salvation is true. Here, here it is. It's because I also heard that you have love for all the saints. But what does that mean? What does it mean for you to have love for all the saints? Because it's pretty important, right? How do you know that you're saved? How do you know that when you proclaim you have faith in Christ, it's genuine? Well, let me start off, okay, by telling you what it doesn't mean. Having love for all the saints does not mean that it's always going to be effortlessly easy for you to get along with other Christians. That's not what it means. Look, when you tell your spouse, I love you, so let's make this work. I love you. Let's, let's really try to make this work. Or when you say, I love being healthy, so I'm going to exercise and eat better. Does love there mean effortless ease? <laughs> love there means you're willing to persevere even when it's hard. I love you. Let's make this work. Is there proclaiming Christians must ask themselves an unexplainable persistence within us that's drawing us toward unity with other saints. Even when, for the most part, some of these other saints are real stinkers, you know? Do you have that? So I don't know if you guys know my story, but I came to Christ in the southern part of the United States, right? And Christianity there, along with Christians there, I found to have its own peculiar little thing going on. And they know, I think, this my best friends know there, it's fine. For example, it's a real story. When I came to Christ there, some people at church asked me if I've ever seen a car before because I came from this country that they've never heard called Indonesia. It's not a joke. It was a real question that I got. Also, you know what my name was there? It was Taser. <laughs> and there would always be this one old southern guy who would come up to me and go, Taser? Like a laser? And I'll go, yes, like a laser. <laughs> See, I get to say all this because I married one of the most beautiful women from those neck of the woods, all right? So I have, I have some permission to say just a little bit. But at first, I was there, and I was like, there's no way. <laughs> these guys, there's no way I'm going to be able to connect, have a relationship with, with any of these guys. And it's not like some of these Southern Christians became less weird to me after I became a Christian. But for some reason, 
there's something about the gospel that transitioned them from being a weird southern person to being my weird southern person. <laughs> and I'm sure I also slowly transitioned from being a weird Asian guy to being their weird Asian guy, <laughs> you know? And I had community. I had real community there. I have best friends that will last forever. A proof, Christian, that the Spirit of Christ is in you is that you have love for all the saints. All the saints, not just the ones that talk and look like you, not just the ones that you naturally click with. All the saints. Okay, but, but hold on. What about love for non-Christians? You know, shouldn't that be a proof too? Shouldn't we have that too? Well, of course, true believers should have love for non-Christians. But there is a kind of exclusive kind of affinity that Paul seems to be referring to here that a true believer would have only with other believers, with the saints. And we hear that and we go, whoa, hold on, isn't, you know, that, that sounds kind of exclusive, Tez. I thought exclusivity was bad. Well, it all depends on what you're being exclusive about. You know, another interesting story, if you read the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament, there's this one scene where Nehemiah led God's people to kind of build a wall up around Jerusalem so that God's people can kind of live within that wall, separated from other nations. And we read that and we go, well, that's pretty exclusive, right? Sure. But do you know what was one of the first things those people did once they separated themselves from the rest of the, the world? You know what they did? They didn't boast about their righteousness. They didn't say, look at us, we're so much better than everyone else. You know what one of the first things they did was? they confess their sins publicly. They didn't say, we're better than other people. You know, we're more holy than other people. We're more put together than other people. They said, let's rally around each other and confess that we're actually the chief of sinners. Let's, let's come around each other and actually confess that even our best religious efforts are like filthy rags before the eyes of a holy God. Now, if that's the kind of exclusive truth that rallies us to one another, do you think that'll lead to pride? Do you think that'll lead to self-righteousness? Absolutely not. It's actually the opposite. If that's the truth that we exclusively separate ourselves with, that'll lead to deep humility. That'll lead to a culture that welcomes anyone, even the worst of sinners. Love everyone, Christian. Find affinity with non-Christians too. But at some point, there's going to be something about the gospel that unites you to one another beyond other means. I mean, how do you explain that feeling of simultaneously being a sinner and yet a saint in Christ in the same millisecond? How do you explain that? How do you explain, Christian, the feeling you felt earlier when you sung the lyrics, there are two truths here that I confess my worth and my unworthiness. How do you explain it to people? It's like, which one is it? Are you worthy or are you unworthy? Are you a saint or are you a sinner? And we go, you know, it's uh, both. How do I explain this? How do you explain that? There's a difference, C.S. Lewis said, between hearing that honey is sweet and actually taking a spoonful of it in your mouth. There's a difference. There's a flavor 
that only those who are in Christ can truly taste and rally under. And it's a flavor that breeds humility, not pride. And I see you all rallying under that flavor. Paul's telling the Ephesian Christians here. Your life's a mess. You're struggling to obey Christ in other areas of life because all these persecutions. But from what I hear, you still have this unexplainable affinity with one another, even through the tough times. So I thank God for your salvation. Be encouraged, friends. You're saved. Come back. That's the first thing Paul prays for. Second, after he encourages them with a prayer of thanksgiving for their salvation, Paul then proceeds to encourage them by lifting up a prayer of supplication, which just means a prayer of request, okay? Second point, Paul asked God to mature the mind of their heart, which is implicitly a call for them to see, to see something. See what? Let's go to verse 17 and 19. Paul said, I hope the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now again, this interesting, even now, Paul doesn't ask God to change their situation. He didn't say, God, open the eyes of their persecutors, you know, make them see. No, no. He said, God, make these struggling Christians see. See what? Two things, their hope and their worth their hope and their worth, okay? You want to get through this? Paul's asking them. Then you got to change. Not your situation. You want to get through this? Then you got to see these things. What things? First, your hope. I ask that God would make the eyes of your heart see the hope to which He has called you, Paul said in verse 18. Look, it's a tough season, and your faith might fade. Your faith might weaken, but there's always hope because it'll never completely disappear. Your faith will never completely disappear, Paul says here. There's hope. Really, Paul? How can you be so sure? Because, he says, he says, this faith and this hope you have, God called you into it. Look at verse 18 again. The hope to which He has called you. His call is a starting point, and this changes everything. Think with me for a second, Christian. If the order of your salvation was this, first, you produced faith on your own, and then, because of this faith that you self-produced, God then calls you like He's on the responsive end. If that's the case, if He's on the responsive end, then the second you lose this faith that you've mustered up in your lonesome, what will happen to God's call? He will take it back. If your faith is a starting point and God's call is dependent upon your faith, then you should be very afraid. You should be scared out of your shoes because your faith falters. But if the starting point, as Paul says, is God's call, He's called you, if He's the initiator, if He called you first and then because He called you, Faith bloomed from within you. If that's the order, then what will happen? At times, you may go, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm slipping away. I just denied him again. I just disobeyed him again. I just fell into that same old sin again. My anger, anger issues flared up again. And we'll panic 
But God will go, I uh, saw that coming like eternally ago. <laughs> I'm not shocked. Are you shocked? I know everything you've done, and I know everything you will ever do, but I called you anyways. Sear these words deep into your hearts, Christian. Paul's telling the Ephesians here. You can't lose something you never earned. You can't lose something you never earned. Do you see how much hope you have? Second, Paul prays that the eyes of their heart would see how much worth they have. Not just how much hope they have, but how much worth they have. Go to verse 18 again. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Read that again carefully. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Whose glorious inheritance is Paul talking about here? Not ours. Earlier, he talked about our glorious inheritance that we will get in the Lord, but not this time. Here, Paul is saying his glorious inheritance. Who's he? God. God has a glorious inheritance? Doesn't he, like, have everything already? What could a being who has everything possibly count as, glorious, as a glorious inheritance? It's like trying to buy a birthday present for Elon Musk. That gets a lot of pressure. What do you do? The guy practically has everything. You know, what could Elon Musk ever consider to be gloriously precious? Whatever it is, it must be unbelievably valuable. Well, what is God's glorious inheritance, friends? What does this God who has everything count as incredibly precious to Him? Look at the end of verse 18. What is it? It's the saints. Who are the saints? It's you. You see that? It's me. You are precious in God's eyes. And it's all connected. Your hope and your worth. See, these two things may seem like two separate things, but it's actually one whole thought that Paul just kind of writes, you know, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Do you realize, Christian, that God did not find you as precious and call you to Himself after you accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's not the order. It's flipped. Do you realize that you accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior because the eternal God who's always viewed you as precious called you to Himself? Get the order right in our heads. Get the order right in our hearts. It's night and day, the difference of hope and worth you'll feel from one and the other. Night and day. Do you see that? How much hope and worth you have. Look, would life be easier for the Ephesian Christians if the Romans didn't persecute them? Of course it would be. Would your life, Christians, be easier if whatever pain point you're currently experiencing didn't exist in your life? Whatever that may be. Of course it would. But look, unless you have this gospel hope, unless you have this gospel worth that Paul is desperately wanting you to see, even if that pain point disappears from your life, whatever that may be, things won't be that much different for you anyways. It won't. Do you know anyone who has everything that this earth has to offer? Everything. But he has no hope. 
and inside they secretly feel this deep sense of shame and worthlessness and insecurity? Do you know people like that? Look, I can pray for a situation to change, and maybe it will. Good on you, Paul's telling these Ephesian Christians here. But even if it does, if you don't have this hope, even if it does, if you don't have this sense of worth, the best thing this earth has to offer won't help you much. So, I'm not going to ask God to change your situation. I'm not going to ask God to take away this pain point you have in your life. You know what I'm going to ask God for? I'm going to ask God that you see this gospel hope and this gospel worth that will last you through all kinds of seasons. But there's a third thing as we close. Paul prays for the Ephesians here. Not only one, did he thank God for their salvation, or two, did he ask God to make them see this, this hope and this worth. Paul prays that God would reveal to them the person who's currently in control of their life, even in this hard situation they're in, okay? Which leads us to our last point. Paul prays that the Ephesian Christians would remember Jesus' current authority, and this here is a call to rethink. Rethink, okay? Your life's a bit crazy right now. There are tons of external pressures outside of you that's revealing tons of internal sins from within you, and it's a lot. However, be encouraged. One, you're saved by Christ on the cross. Two, you have eternal hope and worth, as we talked about, through the cross. But the third thing, you have to realize this to, get, to make, make it through, okay? You have to realize that God's care for you, Christian, goes beyond what He did on the cross. Look at verses 19 to 20. Paul prays that the eye heart of these Christians would see the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. This Jesus, Paul's saying, who died for you on the cross, He's not done with His job. He didn't die on a cross and go, job done, not thinking about them ever again. He died on the cross, and then He raised from the dead, He ascended to the right hand of the Father, and He right now currently is still ministering to you according to His great might. Now, just how mighty is this great might of Christ who's watching over you? Well, He killed death. Paul's saying here, how strong is He? He killed death. And not only that, He did it on a cross. You know, I played a tennis match yesterday, and a lot of you came to visit my match, and I lost. I cramped on the third set, okay, I couldn't make it, <laughs> and I, I admitted defeat, but I kind of also threw in a bit of excuses, you know, out there. I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm 37, he was 26, and, you know, I got two kids, I just can't train as much, and <laughs> I, I throw these excuses out there to, why do we do that? <laughs> When we lose a match, when we lose something, why do we throw out excuses? Because we want to maintain the quote-unquote possibility that maybe I could have won, <laughs> you know? But the way Christ won His battle against death on a cross, oh my, it rendered His enemy bare of any excuse. It's like Jesus said, all right, you know what? Let's fight this battle on your home ground. I'll give you home court advantage. And no, I won't use my legions of angels that I could call, you know, but I won't. 
Also, I'll let you tie my hands behind my back. Actually, you know what? Better yet, put him on a cross. My legs, too. Put him. Go ahead. What else? Oh, I'll tell Peter to put his sword back in. He won't use that. I'll handicap that. And also, I'll let you beat my back to mush with a, with a whip before it begins. Does that sound like a handicap enough for you? Should we go ahead and do this? And even after all of that, at the end of the day, who won the fight? Jesus did. The cross says God didn't just beat death. He absolutely demolished death without it even having the chance to survive or to win. It's not just his might, it's his great might. Do you see, Christian, what is the measurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of his heavenly, in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only now in this age to come, but forever in the one to come. There's... No chance the same unchallenged king that demolished death is currently watching over you from heaven, from the right hand of God. And Paul's telling the Ephesian Christians here, just to add a, a dose of extra certainty, okay? Paul tells them in verse 22, he's watching over you, not just as a king, but as your head, and you're his body. See, a victorious king could still abandon his servants after he wins a battle. But how could a head ever abandon his body? It can't. It won't. He's your head. He's won this victory. And the same Jesus that gives you eternal hope and immeasurable worth is currently right now in heaven controlling every single part of your life. So then why, Tez, am I still broke? <laughs> we ask. Why, Tez, am I still single? Why am I married to the hardest person in the world? Why are my parents' marriage a mess? Why do I have cancer? Why is my family broken? Why is my life filled with hardship? And Paul responds in this passage, I don't know. I don't know what the reason is, but I know what the reasons aren't. I know what the reasons aren't, and it's not because God's abandoned you, Christian, Paul says. It's not because he thinks you're not valuable, as we saw, and it's definitely not because he's currently powerless and out of control over your life. I don't know the reasons why, but I know the reasons why not, and those aren't it. See, in our attempt to encourage beat-down Christians, we often try to offer up speculations, don't we? Oh, oh, God must have done this because He wants to give you something better. Oh, God closed this door because He wanted to open up another one. And that's fine. You know, I get the heart behind those speculations. But I think instead of encouraging struggling Christians by making up our own speculations, it may be better to do so by deleting negative ones.
You see what I'm saying? That's what Paul's doing here. I don't know exactly the reason why, okay? God's letting all this happen to you right now, Ephesian Christians, Jakartan Christians, but it's not because he's abandoned you. It's not because he thinks you're not valuable, and it's not because he's powerless or out of control. This, whatever this is for you, this is happening to you somehow because he loves you, because he thinks you're valuable, and because in his great immeasurable might, he decided that this pain point fits best to be part of your story. I don't know why, but I know why not. And knowing why not might, Christian, just give us that extra dose of push to keep going, to keep obeying Him, to keep running after Him, to keep following Him, even if death itself looms its dark head before you, remember that too is under His great dominion. He feels all in all. And strengthen by that gospel truth, may all of those who rally under its sweet taste, whether in life or death, continue to worship the one who on that cross has paid the price for calling us to himself and will thus never let us go. Let's pray. Father, these are eternal truths that finite minds, even with its best exercise, could only taste a glimpse of. And I pray, Father, that your Spirit right now would give us more than just a taste, but a full dose of it, something I can't do. May the power of your great might that currently controls our lives. May the height and depth and love of love and breadth of your love that has eternally counted us unworthy sinners as precious. May your sovereign call who took us for yourself without any bit of um, credit on our behalf. And may your precious blood that you spilled on that cross to make all of that a reality tastes sweeter than honey in our mouths right now. And whatever we're going through, may you remind us that this is not happening because you're out of control. This is not happening because you don't love us. This is not happening because you don't value us or count us as precious. But in your sovereign might, this is happening actually because of all that. And may we trust you as we sing and worship praises to you amidst the pain points in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends.